I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Charlie Chaplin is arguably one of the most important people in cinema history. Even if you've never seen any of his movies, you almost certainly have a picture in your mind of his signature character, with the cane, the bowler hat, and the little mustache. But he was not universally admired in his day, and he had some pretty powerful enemies, including J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI. This is Podcast Playlist. I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and today it's our monthly new and notable episode where we listen to a sampling of the best new releases. Charlie Chaplin was one of the earliest targets of the Hollywood blacklist. Dozens of actors, directors, and other film workers were accused of being communists, and many never worked in the industry again. That's the subject of the new podcast, Hollywood Exiles, and it's hosted by someone who knows the story intimately, Charlie Chaplin's granddaughter, Una Chaplin, who is also an actor. You might have seen her in Game of Thrones. In this clip, we're going to hear about how Charlie Chaplin first attracted the attention of American authorities. There are multiple cases that are attempted to be built against Chaplin over the years. This is John Spadalotti, author of J. Edgar Hoover Goes to the Movies. There is a file that started on him that way back in 1922. And this is before the FBI was the FBI. It was just the BI, or the Bureau of Investigation. It's before J. Edgar Hoover was the director. He was an assistant director, and he was actually copied in on these files from bureau agents in, in Los Angeles. And why did agents at the Bureau of Investigation, the BI, think that Charlie Chaplin, the comedian and filmmaker, was a threat? They have concerns about, first and foremost, about what they consider to be radical propaganda in the motion pictures. They have concerns about funding of the Communist Party and of other radical organizations. They have concerns about simply associations between creative figures such as Charlie Chaplin and other artists and radicals, figures as prominent as William Z. Foster, who would later be the uh, head of the Communist Party USA. There are flags that are raised. They didn't like his friends. They had suspicions, but no evidence about where he might be spending his money. But they also didn't like his movies. They didn't like the stories he was telling. And this, this is the beginning of a much bigger story. At the same moment the Bureau is zeroing in on Charlie Chaplin as a possible communist, my grandfather is, ironically, doing very well by capitalism. His career is skyrocketing. This is La Brea Avenue in Hollywood. 
And here, you'll find a very distinctive row of cottages that wouldn't look out of place in an English village. This was the studio that Charlie Chaplin built. The little boy from South London, who 20 years before was living in the Lambeth workhouse, now had his very own studio in the heart of the movie-making industry. He was living his version of the American dream. This is Vince over here. Hello, Vince. Hi, nice to meet you. Thank you for letting us come in here for a moment. And this is it. Oh, my goodness. These days, the studio is owned and occupied by the Jim Henson Company, which I'm personally very happy about. Kermit the Frog, with the Tramp's trademark hat and cane, greets visitors as you enter. We're in a room here that I've never been allowed into before. These days, it's Brian Henson's office, Jim Henson's son. But it used to be my grandfather's office. And this is the original fireplace, except it's not a fireplace anymore. It's a gas fireplace? Yeah. I don't even think it, you know, we haven't had that thing on for a long time. <laughs> I mean, why would you? It's hot here. <laughs> <laughs> this is a cozy English lounge, not a plush American office. And I like that it's not super big and ostentatious. I mean, it's a big office, but homely. As a fiercely independent creative, this studio was Charlie Chaplin's dream, his own production facility. And then a year after he built it, he co-founded United Artists, his own distribution outlet. Hollywood had become increasingly concentrated around a handful of powerful studios, often owned and controlled by businessmen and financiers. United Artists had a different vision a studio run by the people who make the movies, who wanted to make better movies. It provided an alternative to the Hollywood model of the studio system. They had the idea of a more artistic approach, a more personal approach. Don't get me wrong, my grandfather was making a lot of money out of it. And Charlie was definitely a businessman, but he had artistic integrity and he wanted to support other artists. So here was Charlie Chaplin in the early 20s. Superstar actor, studio executive, major independent distributor. He was somebody who didn't seem to play by Hollywood's rules. He was willing to go outside the system, to do things differently, to think differently. Behind the scenes, the Los Angeles branch of the Bureau of Investigation was interested in him. He was a foreigner, an Englishman, an outsider. He had an appeal to the common man, and he had friends that they didn't like. They were building a file on Chaplin. In a lot of ways, Charlie Chaplin was the very embodiment of the American dream, a poor kid who makes his way to wealth through hard work and a little luck. 30 years later, he left America his political opponents became too powerful. We were going to the premiere of the film that he had just made called Limelight. This is my mom, Geraldine Chaplin. I wanted to talk to her about her dad leaving America because she was there. And it was going to be a royal premiere and Princess Margaret was there and I was to offer to help a little blind girl give 
flowers to Princess Margaret, and we spent most of the day learning how to curtsy. This was 1952, and little did my mom know that on the journey across the Atlantic, her father had received news that he wasn't welcome in the United States anymore. Do you, um, do you remember being on, on the boat? In, on the boat, on the, on the way across. I remember being on the boat, yes. On the, it was the Queen Elizabeth, and I kept saying because I became great friends with the man who ran the gym, and he would let me, I guess there were horses that you got on and you'd put them on and turn them on and they would gallop. And I remember he let me ride the horses. He would put me on the horses and turn the horses on. And he gave me, when we left, he gave me a little pig, a little China pig. And we arrived at the Savoy Hotel and uh, the pig fell into the, the empty bathtub and smashed. And I remember kept saying, can we go back on the Queen Mary? But my parents were so great. They were such extraordinary parents that they never mentioned what was happening. It was just a holiday. It wasn't just a holiday. It would be almost a quarter of a century before Charlie Chaplin was allowed back into America. That was a clip from the podcast Hollywood Exiles. It's a co-production of CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. It's hosted by Una Chaplin. Their team includes Glenn Tansley, Megan Jones, Kathy Robinson, Phil Channel, and Jeff Turner. It kind of feels like conspiracy theories are everywhere these days, doesn't it? It's as if there's like a big group of the population that lives in a completely different reality from everyone else. And if it feels like that group is growing, well, it's not just you. A recent poll found as many as one in four Canadians believe in online conspiracy theories. The new season of the TVO podcast, Screen Time, is trying to unpack how and why these beliefs are spreading and what we can do about it. Let's listen. A lot of the conspiracy theories about COVID are far-fetched. That it was a pandemic, That Bill Gates put a microchip in the vaccine. But Anna Merlin says the distrust that underpins these theories is actually pretty understandable. So a conspiracy theory is the belief that a powerful group of people are working in secret against the common good to affect a negative change in society, to hide a consequential secret, to seize power, something like that. A conspiracy, of course, is when that is actually occurring. And it's important to make that distinction because American history is rife with examples of actual conspiracies that have affected public life, public policy, public discourse. So medical conspiracy theories are incredibly common because medical neglect and abuse and malpractice against especially minority communities is so common in the U.S. You know, the most infamous example we have is the Tuskegee experiments where the federal government allowed a group of black men to remain infected with syphilis for like 30 years, long after we knew how to treat that illness, um, to track the progression of the disease. There is the Mississippi appendectomy, which is when mostly Black, Latina, and Native women were sterilized against their will and without their knowledge. The U.S. has a long history of human radiation experiments where the government and private corporations were dosing 
prison inmates, children in state care, other vulnerable people with radiation to do various experiments about how radiation spread through the body. Canada's not immune to these kinds of abuses either. Indigenous women in this country have reported being forcibly sterilized as recently as 2018. And so we try really hard not to dismiss the idea out of hand that there is no such thing as an actual conspiracy. Big Pharma has been involved in conspiracies as well. The most infamous example might be Purdue, the American pharmaceutical company that contributed to and profited from an opioid crisis that has killed hundreds of thousands of people. We have an incredibly long history of medical abuse that has led to very low trust in the kind of medical establishment. And so, of course, that came to a head with COVID and COVID conspiracy theories. So my experience is that on an individual level, something has to happen for you to engage in conspiratorial thinking. A system has to have failed you. And so, you know, often when I speak to people, it is the medical establishment failing them in some way, leading to anti-vaccine beliefs. And I think the issue with marking things baselessly as disinformation is that it robs people of their agency and it fails to truly understand why people are engaging in and following conspiracy theories. It almost creates like a brainwashing model and claims that people are being set in front of their computers and hypnotized, which is just simply not what is happening. So let's take the convoy in its first weekend, right? We kind of forget, you know, February 2022, some of us haven't seen our family in years. People are tired, people are exhausted. Stephanie Carvin is an associate professor of international affairs at Carleton University and a former national security analyst. I think there was a lot of people who had lost hope and weren't being given any plan, any hope by the government. And when people don't have hope and when there's no plan, of course people are going to jump onto the easy ideas, the easy solutions, the convenient narratives, because that's what's on offer. Stephanie says that while the scale of the convoy was unprecedented, the ideas that swirled around it weren't. If you look at the narratives that have been pushed since the 1930s in Canada, a lot of them are very similar to what you see now. Ideas about shady world orders, the idea of government control, communist control, and all these kinds of things. Anna Merlin, the vice journalist, says that some of those narratives go back even further than that. Conspiracy theories have always been a valuable way to rally your base against a common enemy, to tell them, you know, who they should be mad at, to blame for something that you perhaps did not get done or, you know, a promise that you didn't keep, and to kind of point the finger at a useful group of outsiders. And we've been seeing that since the Middle Ages. There's nothing new about that specifically. Before it was Davos, it was the United Nations. Before it was the United Nations, it was, you know, the Jews. So the idea that conspiracy theories are somehow more or worse, or that we've entered some kind of golden age for them, I think is a little bit ahistorical. But of course, what has changed is the delivery mechanism, uh, meaning the internet and social media and the speed of it. From TVO Today, that was a clip of the podcast Screen Time, The Battle for Reality. It's hosted by Taylor Owen and Supriya Devetti. Their team includes Mitchell Stewart, 
Emily Morantz, and Cameron McIver. You're listening to Podcast Playlist. I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and today we're listening to some of the best new releases. Just a warning that this next story is about domestic violence. In the fall of 2020, Helen Nasland was sentenced to 18 years in prison for the death of her husband, Miles. When her story came out in the press, there was a public outcry. Miles had been physically and verbally abusing Helen and their kids for years. He had often threatened them with a loaded gun and forced the four of them to do practically all the work on their Alberta farm. The podcast In Her Defense from The Globe and Mail tells Helen's full story from the abuse to her husband's death to the legal drama that followed. The podcast In Her Defense from The Globe and Mail tells Helen's full story from the abuse to her husband's death to the legal drama that followed. In this clip, we're gonna hear from some of Helen's neighbors and family about how much they knew in the early days. Let's listen. Maybe you've known a family like the Naslins. There's stories that go around, things you notice about the people who live in your town. But even if you know something is going on, and this can be true in a small town or in a big city, a workplace, it's hard to know what to do. What if you say something and people get mad at you? What if you somehow make it worse? I mean, we knew there was problems there, but what do you do about it? I mean, she couldn't even do anything about it. I mean, bits and pieces we heard, uh, she wouldn't even try to run away because he knew he'd hunt her down and then there'd be big trouble. I mean, he would beat her so bad. And, he, and I mean, she knew that and we knew that. So things were never reported. And that was the bad part. It was never reported to the police. But. You know, many, many, many people knew what was going on, but nothing was said. She did, she did it all. Like, honestly, they would not survive without Helen. Corlene LeClaire worked at the Holden Hotel. She and her husband were neighbors of the Naslins, and for a time, friends. He would normally be getting up about that time at 10 o'clock, and he'd sit in his little lazy boy chair and... She'd grab him his water because normally he'd been drinking or doing something overnight or he doesn't get up in the morning. And I know there's the one time I remember uh, that she was, uh, she changed the oil in the tractors and the combine and the trucks and all that. And he, uh, I says, how come she's doing that? And he says, well, just in case I'm not here one day that, I don't know. So 10 o'clock's pretty late for a farmer to wake up. She used to pack her kids up and she had, they had a hundred and some chickens and cows calving. And she'd pack the kids up, either slay them out or carry them outside while she did chores or check things while he's still in bed and stuff. It was just lazy. Do you remember what you thought about that at the time? I just thought it was a useless thing. That's seriously. Corlene and her husband used to go over for coffee every day in the early years. They were the closest neighbors, and their kids were around the same age. Corlene liked Helen a lot, but at some point she stopped going over to visit. 
there was a while that I quit talk going to them because I didn't really like the way the kids were being brought up because I'd offered to take the kids to baseball and stuff like that and he would never let them do that kind of stuff. And the kids were getting bad and so I didn't want my son associated with that. Then my daughter was a little younger and stuff so and she wasn't going to associate with that. So there was a few years that I never even had much to do with them because of it. But their kids like would kick each other and they're like very abusive to each other. Like down near kill each other on the way to the buses. You could see sometimes if we happen to drive by or even when they're little, like but probably came because they seen what was going on, I guess, and thought it was all right. But. And did you in that time did you have any concerns about like so you saw seem as lazy. I've never seen him hit or anything like that, seriously, but I just I just thought he was extremely lazy that why does she have to do everything all the time, right? Did you ever see him or get a sense of him being like, you know, kind of sharp with her or like swearing oh, yeah, at he her? He was, yeah. He's always hollering and stuff like that, definitely. You could hear it from miles some days, right? You could hear the yelling from yeah. your house. Oh, yeah. I'm not sure if it was the kids sometimes or, but yeah, you could know, you could hear the yelling from, I was a half a mile just across the bush. And did you ever, I mean, you've already described yourself as someone who kind of... I, I stick to myself. I'm not really an outspoken person, honestly, that this is... <laughs> <laughs> Make me very uncomfortable. Yeah. So. So you, did you ever think... And I went through a lot of stuff myself, so it was... I should have left my husband 20 years ago before, so I stayed for the kids and stuff. You had your own things happening. Yeah. Okay. So um, how many kids in your family? There was eight. Eight. Okay. And where is Helen in that order? She's the baby. The baby. Okay. And where are you in that order? Just older than Helen. Okay. The second baby. Sure. <laughs> yeah. The, the two afterthoughts. Or, right. <laughs> or the two that shouldn't have happened. This is Sharon Heslop, <laughs> Helen's sister. She also had some opinions about Miles and the way he treated his wife and kids. He was a braggart. He'd seen it all, done it all, knew it all. And yet I always thought he, he was just a lazy piece of crap. Like he, like it, and, you know, he was friendly enough. He could, he could be a friendly, nice guy, and, and I'm quite sure there was... Lots of neighbors and people that thought he was the best guy in the world. He'd help anybody. But that isn't what he was like at home, I don't think. He was no threat to me. So I, I if he said something I didn't like, I just told him, I told him off. And it never went any farther than that. But, you know, thinking back, I'm not sure how much Helen paid for that. And, and she's never said, right? But I'm going to bet there was some retaliation at times. And what, what did you see in Helen at that point? How was she in those years? Very down. 
Like it. Um, so she never really laughed. She didn't. She didn't talk much. It was like she only talked when she was asked a question. Miles like thought he could tell me what to do also, and I remember once telling him I just left. 16 years of somebody telling me what to do, and he wasn't telling me I'd do what I wanted to do. And I don't know why I didn't see it, but I, I honestly didn't. From the Globe and Mail, that was a clip from the podcast In Her Defense. That's Defense with a C. It's hosted by Jana Pruden. It's produced by Kasia Mihailovich. On the northeast tip of North America, on an island called Newfoundland, there's an airport. It used to be one of the biggest airports in the world. And next to it is a town called Gander. Welcome to the rack if you come from The Broadway musical Come From Away immortalized the story of what happened in Gander, Newfoundland after 9-11. The town ended up taking in thousands of passengers from diverted flights. It's a hopeful story about the kindness and generosity of Newfoundlanders, and most of the characters are actually based on real people. One of those characters is named Edward Brake, and there's a scene in the play when he approaches a rabbi who's been diverted to Gander to tell him his story. I was born in Poland, I think, and my parents, they were Jews. They sent me here before the war started. I still remember some prayers they taught me. As a boy, I was told I should never tell anyone I was Jewish, even my wife. But after what happened on Tuesday, so many stories gone just like that. I needed to tell someone. When Edward Brake's real-life grandson, Justin, saw that scene in the musical, he was floored. As far as he knew, his grandfather had come from a long line of Newfoundlanders, not from Poland. Justin Brake is a journalist, and he set out to find the truth. The result is a three-part series he produced for Canada Land called The Newfoundlander. We're going to listen to some of it now. And just a warning. This story includes descriptions of violence and will be disturbing for some listeners. The rabbi's name is Levi Sudak. I learned that he's been telling the story of his encounter with my grandfather for years. Here he is in 2020, speaking to an audience in England about my pop, Edward Brake, and revealing new details that can't be found in the book or the play. Ed asked me, please, take your finger and run it down the back of my head. And I could feel indents in the skull where he'd been thwacked. The war came, business in England was tough. It seemed that there was a business opportunity in Newfoundland and Ed's parents, new parents, migrated to Newfoundland. I can't believe what I'm hearing. Before Pop died, when he was in palliative care, I did try to ask him about his past. He changed the subject, and I dropped it. But Rabbi Sudak? 
he had a whole bunch of stuff I'd never heard. So I emailed him, and he called me right away. So the story begins in Berlin in the 1930s when the Nazis came to power. Your great-grandparents lived in, in the city and were recognized as Jews. And the young Nazis would come around to the Jewish homes every evening and pick up one or two of the children and march them off to the local school and bring them into the gymnasium. Now, the floor of the gymnasium, your grandfather said, had a pug floor. I gather that's cork. And the children were made to take off their shoes and their socks. On the wall around the gymnasium, there were nails banged into the wall at around shoulder height. And these Nazis would tie strings to the big toes of the children and make them crawl up with their feet up the wall so that just their shoulders and their necks were resting on the floor and would tie those toes of these poor little children to the nails. And the children would lie like this for a long time. If they flinched, a searing pain would shoot through their body. Rabbi Sudak tells me that Pop showed him evidence of this when they met. He took off his shoe and showed him his foot. The rabbi says my Pop's big toe was indeed disfigured, that it sprung out from his foot to the side like an extended thumb. There came a point where Jewish children would be allowed to leave Germany, and that was what was later became known as the Kindertransport. However, your great-grandparents paid a fortune of money that your grandfather and his brother should be adopted by an English family. That's where the name Break comes from. Your grandfather did not remember his Hebrew name, and he did not remember his birth family name. And the reason for this was that the breaks would beat both children senseless. And your grandfather asked me to be a witness and to run my finger down the back of his skull and I could feel the indents. And he said, those indents are from being thwacked with a pole on the back of my head. Any time that we were caught singing a Jewish song, or saying anything that sounded like Jewish, they would get thwacked like that on the back of their head. There came a time when the parents, now the adopted parents of Ed and his brother, decided to move to Newfoundland, and the treatment continued the same way. Tortured as a child by Nazis for being Jewish? And then beaten by my great-grandparents for acting Jewish and for singing Jewish songs? This is all new information to me, but a piece of it hits hard with the force of truth. The abuse. The beatings. I did know about that. And there's another piece I recognize. Back around the time I finished high school, around 1999, my grandparents and all seven of their children happened to be in Gander at the same time for the first time in years. They gathered at my aunt's backyard for just their second family portrait ever. It wasn't until that photo was developed and enlarged that we noticed on the knob of the walking stick my pop was holding was a Star of David. 
I vaguely remember some remarks within the family about my pop using a walking stick with a symbol of Judaism, a religion we knew little about and certainly had no connection to in our very Catholic family. And I saw the cane, beautiful work of wood, and in the knob was carved out very beautifully a Star of David. Your grandfather didn't tell anybody what was special about the king, and evidently either your father or your uncle or someone exclaimed to your grandfather, Dad, you cannot have that. They're going to find us and they're going to kill us. So this was evidently a fear that was in the hearts of your family members, that Nazis could still raise their ugly heads and do terrible things once again, which is probably why the story is not told a lot in your family. The rabbi's story is gripping, but I just cannot believe what I'm hearing. If this is all true, then it wasn't just my grandfather who kept secrets. My entire family was in on it, suppressing the truth from the world and from me out of a fear of Nazis emerging in Newfoundland. I had intended to just listen on this call more than speak, but I can't hold it back, and I find myself telling Rabbi Sudak that this just doesn't make sense to me. I tell him that I still believe my pop was born in Newfoundland, and that I need to keep digging to get to the truth of all this, and then reconnect with him to sort it all out. But that was the last time we spoke. He'd agreed to talk to me again, but hasn't responded to my messages ever since. But he did keep sharing my pop's story. Only now, I was in it. I have been in touch with Ed's grandson. He was very surprised by much of what he had learned through the play and then from me about his grandfather. As far as he was concerned, his grandfather was never in Europe. This is from an interview Rabbi Sudak did with the Canadian Jewish News for the 20th anniversary of 9-11. He's speaking to their host, Ellen Besner. But as far as Mr. Brake's family goes, I think I read that you provided him with a talus and some other Jewish uh, religious artifacts and hoped that he would take them and use them to be buried with them. And was that ever done? Do you know? Because he died in 2008. Sudak explains that when a couple from Gander visited him in London in 2005, he sent back with them some things from my pop. And I sent with them also a talus and a siddha for, for Ed. Ed made a party when he received his Jewish gifts. Ed was very proud to have his Jewish gifts. Ed, when he passed away, asked that these gifts be buried with him in his coffin. And that, I know, was carried out. I have the yarmulke and prayer shawl that Rabbi Sudak sent my pop, so I know they were not buried with him. And I was at the funeral and his wake. I saw his body in his coffin, and I did not see a prayer book in there with him. From Canada Land, that was a clip from The Newfoundlander. It's a three-part miniseries you can find in the Canada Land podcast feed. It's hosted by Justin Brake and produced by Jesse Brown, Tristan Capicchione, and Bruce Thorson. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. 
Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. In 1989, Boston was consumed by a media frenzy surrounding the shooting of a young couple. Charles Stewart and his pregnant wife, Carol, were shot in their car after leaving a birthing class at a nearby hospital. Charles called 911 before he blacked out and gave a description of the shooter, a young black man wearing a tracksuit. But it would be months before that was revealed to be a lie. At the time, the crack epidemic was at its height, crime was on the rise, and Boston had a reputation as the most racist city in America. And Charles guessed, correctly, that a story about a black shooter would throw the police off his trail. What followed was a wave of racial profiling and police brutality whose effects still linger in Boston's black community. That's the focus of a new podcast about the case from the Boston Globe and HBO. The show traces the impact of the manhunt on Boston's Black population and explores the real story behind Carol Stewart's death. The series is called Murder in Boston, and it's hosted by Globe reporter Adrian Walker. Let's listen. We are at the Tobin Gym, a place that was like a sanctuary to me. Basketball court where I lived so regularly. I lived directly Five minutes around the corner. Don Juan is back in his old neighborhood, Mission Hill, at the place he used to come to as a kid, the Tobin Center. They kept up with the place very well. The floor is amazing. The hoops are still there, same exact. They still got banners up and everything, man. It wasn't easy to grow up in this neighborhood during the crack epidemic. Every single landmark of his childhood seemed like it was tied to a violent memory, a dead body in a trash can, or a bullet through a window. But now, standing here in this gym, it's different. He's smiling. I just moved my heart to know this is my sanctuary, place where I never had to worry about no police, no brutality, no no violence, no nothing. I could sit here and, and this is like my second home. That was the Tobin for a lot of people in Mission Hill. And my office used to be right over here. One of the guys in charge of the Tobin was Ron Bell and he knew basically every kid in the neighborhood. He thought of himself as a kind of protector of kids like Don Juan. I remember working with children who would wait for me on the steps on Saturday mornings when I would open up the facility. It became somewhat of a mecca. But after the Stewart shooting, cops smothered the community center. Suddenly the Tobin wasn't a sanctuary. It was a building full of young black men wearing tracksuits, just like Chuck's description. I remember the news. A pregnant white woman was allegedly killed by a black man. That's what we heard, and and it was nothing but police in Mission Hill the next day. I was walking down Tremont Street here, coming from Mike's Donuts. He was on his way to work when he saw a group of black guys detained by the police. Right here, right here. lined up in front of here, right, right up here. And I was working right in here. They had their pants pulled down around their ankles. Right here on this fence, 
is where black men were being stripped during the Charles Stewart tragedy in 1989. And suddenly, Ron faced this terrible choice. He was the assistant director. He had some power. He could step forward and try to stop the cops. But Ron was also a black man. He was just as much a suspect as any of these guys. And the cops hadn't seen him yet. And that's when I turned around. Why did you turn around? Because I didn't want to be subjected to that. And it was intimidating, to be quite frank. This feeling of guilt, of complicity, it never left him. That memory of being victimized at night, or the months. It wasn't just a day, Adrian, October 23rd. It was months this went on. The city wanted this to be an open and shut case, and police promised a quick arrest. But even with every available detective called to action, investigators weren't catching any easy breaks. And the longer the search for the killer went on, the wider the net was cast. Chuck had described the shooter as a grown man, but it seemed like the police had a liberal view of that. I was a 13, 14-year-old, skinny, tall, goofy kid. The first time, Tito Jackson was stopped by the cops. He had just finished a game of basketball at the Tobin. It wasn't a large group. It was like, you know, three or four of us. And we weren't, you know, wild, whatever. And in fact, we had just left the gym, right? So means we're tired because we had just basically worked out and we were all headed home to make sure that we did our homework and, and go back to school the next day. Today, Tito is a successful entrepreneur and local politician. But in 1989, he was this gangly teenager with a crush on a girl he was desperate to impress. She was also out on the street that day. And we were approached by two officers who got out of a squad car and told us to face the fence, put our hands up against the fence. So there he is in front of this girl. He's scared, but he doesn't want to show it. And that swagger that you you try to exude at that time and how cool you are and, and, on, and the like. The cops don't give a shit about Tito or his crush. Get up against the fence. We were facing the fence. And they patted us down. And now drop them. And we knew what that meant. This was a situation where you know it's life or death. It is very, very apparent that if you do the wrong thing, very real consequences. So right there, in the middle of the sidewalk on Tremont Street, Tito drops his sweatpants. He stood there with his hands on the fence in his underwear. And at the time, the thing I was most worried about was not being dehumanized. I was a kid, so I was worried that the girl who was there that I had a crush on saw that I did not put lotion on my kneecaps. And so I was, and they were making fun of me because I had to drop my pants and my knees had a lot of uh, dry skin. They were ashy. The burn that I had was anger at the police officers, but it was mostly because they embarrassed me. He can't say how long it lasted. Considering that the young lady was laughing at me, it felt like an eternity. 
And then, you know, they left. And then we, we went on. Tito would be stopped four or five more times in the weeks that followed. And by the way, we weren't special. They were doing this to everybody. We have officers uh, from just about every unit in the Boston Police Department uh, working on this case. Intense is the only way you can describe the search that is going on here at Roxbury tonight. They still believe he is somewhere in hiding at the Mission Hill housing projects, and they're hopeful that he surfaces or that someone turns him in. Police are pressing their street informants, hoping talk on the street will flush out a suspect. Black men and teens were the primary targets. Those few weeks after, it was brutal because they just kept on looking and looking and looking. But others in the neighborhood got swept up too, including a lot of Latino men. I'll never forget them. They were brutal. Jeff Sanchez was a 19-year-old college student working two jobs when the cops stopped him and a friend. There were two massive, very big white men that came at us and were like, they grabbed us by the back of the neck. You know, in horrid and way, they threw us in the hallway, told us to drop our pants down because they didn't want to touch us dirty. And, and that's what, you know, we're like, we're done. We're done. His mom had warned him about what to do in a situation like this. She would always tell me when I was a kid, if the police have us come up to you, you just put your hands up and you just stay quiet. From the Boston Globe and HBO documentary films, that was Murder in Boston. It's hosted by Adrian Walker. Their team includes Evan Allen, Elizabeth Coe, Andrew Ryan, Brendan McCarthy, and Kristen Nelson. If you follow tennis, you may have heard of the Ukrainian player Sergei Stakovsky. He made a name for himself in 2013 when he beat Roger Federer at Wimbledon. Sergei retired from tennis in January 2022, and just a few weeks later, Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Stokovsky was on vacation with his family in Dubai when the war broke out. But before long, he decided to return to Ukraine and join the army to help defend his country. The podcast Sports Explains the World did a two-part episode on his story back in November, and we're going to listen to some of it now. For Sergei, those first few days were a whirlwind, trying to process what was happening. Where should they go? What should they do? Everybody said, oh, Ukraine will fall in three days, Ukraine will fall in four days. And to every expert in America and Europe, everybody was saying the same thing. I knew that, you know, Ukraine is not the only target. I mean, they were always talking about this greater Russia or the Soviet Union or the, that they were owning half of Europe. So you understand that if they reach the border of European Union, they're not going to stop there. So uh, I've decided that I'm going to wait and see and see how the situation evolves. After a few days of following the news... When we saw that, you know, that the advance is not so fast, that actually in some positions they couldn't push through. They couldn't push through those lines where we're establishing the defense. So I understood that, you know, uh, there's a window to come back. Two days into the Russian invasion, Sergei and his family flew from Dubai to Budapest. I've uh, put uh, the kids and Fisa back to our apartment. I've loaded the luggage, whatever, and the nanny. And then Fisa came up to me and said, like, what are you going to do? I mean, she knew the answer. She just didn't want to ask the question because she was scared of the answer. And I said, I have to go. Go back to Ukraine to fight in the war. And she said, you cannot go because you have three kids. Uh, it's irresponsible, blah, blah. 
And she said, if you're going to go, you don't have to return. I mean, she was furious, I understand it. And then she left to, to bath Taisia, to wash her hair. And I took that time and actually packed my backpack and left. The only two little ones, they were watching TV. And the younger one, Alex, he saw me leaving and he was running after me. He's like, Daddy, where you go? Because he has a real, I would say, he has an attachment to me. I don't know why. Um, we have a good bond. And um, and he ran to me like, where are you going? And he's really little. I'm saying, I'm just going to the garage. I'll be right back. Yeah. And that was the hardest part because when I actually left, I get in the car and I start driving. And I mean, you know, I actually wanted to return, but I had no idea what was it going to be. How tough was that to leave your family behind? You know, for me, saying goodbye to kids and uh, and Fisa at the time uh, was the toughest decision I had to make in my life. It was brutal. I I wish that nobody has to ever do it. Unfortunately, in Ukraine, that's uh, not even a question at this moment. But I also understand the other side, what it's like for her, because she knew that there's big chances of me not coming back. I accept and understand that point. It's... For her, I betrayed the family. Uh, I feel slightly different because, firstly, my father and brother, and at that time when I was making the decision, my mother was still in Ukraine, and that's my family too. Maybe, yes, I've put myself at risk and in danger, and there's a chance, there's still a chance that my kids will have to grow up without a father. But uh, they are in safe conditions, they're in warms, they have normal social life, they go to school, they don't experience the war. Whether Ukrainian kids and their families experiencing something brutal. No electricity, no food, no light, no water. So, I mean, I believe that in terms of responsibilities, I've did at least the minimum, so they're safe. I want to pause here to make clear. Sergei was not required to go fight. In Ukraine, any father with three children was exempt. He couldn't be drafted. Three was the cutoff line. But Sergei felt that Ukraine, the country where he'd been born, needed him. I had a certain skill set already because I trained. So I knew that I know how to operate the gun uh, safely. I know how to shoot. I know how to move. I know how that I can actually be off service. And yes, I left to defend the country where I was born. Yes, I had to move out when I was young, when I was 12, to Czech Republic because of the tennis, because the facilities in Ukraine were extremely expensive and not affordable. And I never lived in Ukraine, like normally, but I always wanted to because I love the country. I was born there. I represented a country and throughout the 18 years of my career. I stood up for the anthem, I sang the anthem, I went to Olympics. So there was everything, everything which gives you that, that attachment emotion is there in me. And of course, I guess it's how I was raised, was uh, through my parents, that what they give me, what, what's right was wrong. And what Russia did is not that it's only wrong, it's, it's insane. And they have to be pushed back and they have to be punished for what they did. And so Sergei started driving from Budapest up through Slovakia toward the Ukrainian border. As he headed toward Ukraine, some members of his family were leaving. His mother was driving to the Czech Republic, along with his sister-in-law, his sister-in-law's mother, his nephew, and his niece. On his way in, Sergei met his mother briefly at a gas station in Slovakia. She said that, you know, that I don't have to do it, that I'm here, that I have three kids and everything, and she was scared. Of course she was scared. I said, don't worry about that. Uh, 
we'll manage. I have a gun, we'll manage. But I think he was, she was still in shock and she didn't really understand what's going on, so uh, it was a bit easier for me to squeeze out. I asked Sergei's mother about this meeting too. What, what was that meeting at the gas station like? Was it emotional? Did, I don't know, did you give him a big hug? She said, just to realize that your son is going to war, it's hard emotionally. She had made her case, and he said to her, Mom, you're not going to be taking this away from me. Finally, Sergei reached the Ukrainian-Slovakian border, where he saw Ukrainian refugees fleeing the country. It was cold. It was still minus eight. Uh, it was midnight, past midnight. Um, hundreds of kids, hundreds of women. The, the traffic was stuck one way, so basically you had a two-way street and there was three lines of cars just coming out of Ukraine uh, that was maybe 30, 40 kilometers long. You could see that people are crossing the border without anything, just basically as they are, without any luggage, without any clothes warm, nothing. Sergei crossed the border and started walking because the roads were completely blocked with cars and people fleeing. He walked for miles, caught up with a friend, walked some more together until they reached the friend's car. On the drive to Kiev, Sergei was stopped several times at makeshift checkpoints. Every village would barricade the road and put the checkpoint in, and and you would have the locals who would have, you know, <laughs> who would have uh, hunting rifles on themselves, and they would be, you know, checking your passport and where you're from and what you're doing, where you're going. Normal everyday Ukrainians had set up these checkpoints to defend their country, and I knew that there was a great number of Ukrainians which would step up, and the only power we have is in unity. If those people would lead by example that would unite nation. The president stayed and he united the nation because every other president which Ukraine had would run. From Wondery, Meadowlark, and Campside Media, that was Sports Explains the World. It's hosted by Sam Dingman. That story was reported and written by Tim Rowan and produced by Jamie York, Cody Nelson, and Rachel Miller Howard. And that's it for Podcast Playlist this week. I hope you heard something you like. And if you did, you can find links and more info on our website at cbc.ca slash podcast playlist. And if you haven't already, why not follow us on Spotify or whatever favorite podcast app you listen to podcasts on? You can leave a rating and review and it will help other people find the show. Podcast Playlist is Julian Uzielli and Kelsey Cueva. Production help this week from Sam McNulty. Our intern is Eileen Yamamoto. Our senior producer is Kate Evans, and our executive producer is Cecil Fernandez. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. See you next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.